This is Leaving Laodicea, the online podcast of Steve McCraney. I'm glad you're here. Stay tuned, because we've got some exciting things in store for you. Hang tight. You can't handle the truth. As I've shared with you when we were talking about the Sermon on the Mountain, again, this was that back in the fall as we went through the Beatitudes in great detail, the Sermon on the Mount is basically Jesus laying out for us what life is like in the kingdom. He, um, he wants them to know that when you embrace Christ, when you come into the fold, when you accept Him as Lord and Savior, when you realize your chosenness in Him, that these are the rules, these are the, the new realities that you have. You no longer have to fight with spiritual battle, battles with earthly means, which you can't do, that, that this, is, this is the new reality right now. And, and so He uh, begins by laying out for them the Beatitudes. And if you look at verse number 3, you see those, but you'll notice there's a distinction here. In the beginning of the Beatitudes, it's always, Blessed are the... Definitive article are blessed are those, some people out there, some group of people that may or may not include you. Verse number three, blessed are the poor. You uh, in spirit, you maybe not. Verse four, blessed are those. Verse five, blessed are the meek. Verse six, blessed are those. Verse seven, blessed are the. Verse eight, blessed are the pure in heart. Verse nine, blessed are the peacemakers. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. We go from, we go from talking about these incredible blessings are going to take place on the selected group of people, but the way that Jesus phrases it, it's always that segment, the poor in spirit, or it's those people who are getting persecuted for righteousness, but he doesn't make it personal during his first 10 verses. He just kind of lays out for them the realities of life in the kingdom. And then all of a sudden, something changes. When we go to verse 11, everything is focused not on those people out there, but on us, on you, the person who's actually hearing this. Blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my name's sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad. Why? For great is your reward in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now the shift isn't just some group of people out there that we may or may not be able to relate to, but it's landed on our doorstep, it's in our lap, it's something we have to deal with it. And then it continues, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. Not those people, but you are the salt of the earth. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. Verse 16, which kind of summarizes the next three or four verses. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. And then it continues. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, now, whenever the Lord says this, it's incredibly personal. For assuredly, certainly, most definitely, I'm saying this not to them, not to those, not to these people, but I'm saying it to you. This is a personal message from Christ to you. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle will by no means pass in the law till it is fulfilled. He's talking about the integrity of Scripture. Then he goes on in verse 20. And he says, for I say again to you, that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So when he begins these Beatitudes, he starts out by, you know, Jesus had a habit of doing this. If you remember in, in Matthew chapter 16, he's asking the disciples, who do the people say that I am? 
And so they, who do those people out there say that I am? Oh, well, they say that you're uh, uh, John the Baptist. They say you're Elijah, Jeremiah, one of the prophets of old. That's what they say. All right, but you can't get away with that. What do you say? Because now it becomes personal. What do you say? Probably a pause there. It's hard to tell in the Greek. And then Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Doesn't matter what they say, Peter. It matters what you say. It's not what am I to them or what am I to those people or what blessings this group of people will have, but what am I to you? And then at that point in time, from that point on, when he establishes what God's word says, and he contrasts it with the teachings of the Pharisees. We're going to look at that in just a second. He begins to lay out for them in segments what life in the kingdom looks like in real time. Not life in the church, not life in America, not life in your family, but what life as a citizen of the kingdom really looks like. And he begins with anger, murder, and worship which is what we're going to look at a little bit at today. He begins in verse number 21, where he says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, and then he talks about murder, then he talks about anger, and then he talks about if you're angry, then you're going to actually go to worship. Stop what you're doing. Don't take your gift or your alms to the Lord first. Leave it there at the altar. Go be reconciled to your brother. Then come back and worship to the Lord, because they're all interconnected. After that, he talks about marriage, divorce, divorce, and adultery. Verse 27, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. And then he goes on to talk about adultery of the heart. He goes on to talk about lust and stuff of that nature. The Jews at this time only believed the law governed external actions. In other words, as long as I don't actually consummate an adulterous relationship with a woman that's not my wife, I've never committed adultery, even though every night I sit at home and look at porn. And Jesus says, that's ridiculous. It doesn't work that way because it's out of your heart that leads to these external sins. After that, he talks about oaths and vows. Verse number 33. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old. And then he talks about oaths and vows. Then he talks about revenge and vengeance in verse number 38. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, and he, he begins to clarify that. After that, he talks about love and acceptance and forgiveness in verse number 43. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies, but I say to you. And then when all this is done at the end of, of these various areas of our life, that Jesus wants to show how the kingdom really works in them. He sums it up like this in the last verse of this chapter. And he says, therefore, based on everything that I just told you, based on what the law used to say or what the Pharisees claimed the law said, and based on what the reality is, or therefore, you shall be perfect. And this word perfect means it doesn't mean like perfect, never erring, as much as it means complete and finished, brought to an end, that it achieves its attended goal, that it's, it's not lacking anything, that you shall be complete. Like, like in Colossians, where it says that we are complete in him, that you shall be perfect in the way that there's nothing needed to be added to you to make you any better. You shall be perfect to what extent? Just like your father in heaven is also perfect. Same Greek word. As the father doesn't need anything added to him to make him better or complete, and everything he's done has completed, its accomplishes his desire, so it's supposed to be with us. Nothing to add, it's add to make us any better than we are. This is how we're supposed to be perfect, complete, not lacking anything in Christ. Because every one of those sins that he talks about in Matthew chapter 5, always stem from some perceived lack that we have. I'm not satisfied with my wife. I'm not satisfied with, with her anymore because maybe she's older or maybe she's not as pretty as she used to be or maybe, God forbid, that she's been in a traffic accident and she's confined to a wheelchair and she can't meet my needs as a man or something of that nature. So therefore, I have a perceived need that I refuse to let Christ handle it. So therefore, I'm going to go out and meet it myself and find another woman and have an adulterous relationship with. Or 
Jesus said, or the, the Lord said, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. But I'm not willing to let that happen. If somebody maligns me, if somebody attacks me, if somebody says something bad about me, then it's my right to be angry back and to, to slap them back and to say even worse things about them. Because there's some need in me that isn't allowed, that, that I'm not allowing to be turned over to Christ and just trust Him. All of these sins are tied up by some perceived need that we have that we're trying to manage ourselves. And he says we're to be perfect. Now, we're going to look at the first one here. Um, Verse 21, where it talks about the teaching about anger and the teaching about murder. But I want you to understand that there's a deeper principle here than just what lies on the surface. Here's what the scripture says. You have heard that it was said to those of old. Key word here is those. Those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. I remember the first part of this. The first part of this came from Exodus. Do you remember that? One of the Ten Commandments? You ever remember reading the second part of this? And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment? You ever found any place in the Old Testament where it says that? You don't. But the Jews had accepted that as the law. It says that you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. Well, this is from God. No, it's not, because the word those is plural. Somebody, those out there, those of old, this, this group of people is telling you that this is what the law says. If it's plural, it can't be Moses. He's singular, and it can't be God. He is also singular. So there's a body out there. There's a group out there. There's some group of people that these Jews were embracing, basically adding to the word of God, downplaying the word of God and saying that you shall not murder. That's scriptural. And if you do murder, here's the penalty. The penalty isn't death anymore. The penalty is that you will be in danger of the judgment. What in the world does that mean? Who, Who are these people of old? Now, you need to understand that uh, Satan is very clever, and Satan continues using the same tricks over and over again, not only with the Jews, but also with Christians, because it's very effective. It seems like it continually works because we're kind of gullible and we're really apathetic when it comes to knowing the things of the Lord. What happened was when the Jews were carried off into Babylon for 70 years, many of them died in Babylon. They had a new generation that was raised up, and some of that generation came back to uh to uh, rebuild the temple and, and, and deal with the, uh, recreate the nation of Israel at that time. But what happened while they were in Babylon, they accepted Babylonian ways. They forgot about Hebrew because it wasn't practiced anymore. They became like when in Rome, you do what the Romans do. And all of a sudden their identity as believers in, in Jehovah kind of died. And so they incorporated Babylonian customs and especially the Babylonian language as their first language and didn't hold on to Hebrew. They had, therefore, to rely on the rabbis to tell them exactly what the word meant. They lost the ability to read the word for themselves, and so they had to have some hired holy man out here whose job was to study the word, who still knew Hebrew, and I'll read it to you, I'll interpret it for you, I'll tell you exactly what it means. So your faith is no longer resting on the word of God, but your faith is resting on a rabbi's interpretation of what that word is. You ever seen that happen before in Christianum? Instead of providing a proper translation for them, what the rabbis would do is they would interpret the scripture themselves. They would determine what it actually meant based on their culture and their human way of wisdom. They would write those in the margins of the scrolls. Pretty soon they were codified in it so that the people coming back from... um, from Babylon wouldn't be able to tell the difference between a rabbi's opinion or what the scripture actually says. And they were kind of left at the mercy of whoever was proclaiming the word of God. Catholic Church did exactly the same thing. They did it for centuries. First thing they did is they decided that the laity, people like you and me, couldn't have the the Bible anymore. Um, You know, Tyndale changed all that, and then the Catholic Church tried to kill people who would actually take the Scriptures and put them in the hands of people like you and me in a language we can read. Then they would conduct all the services in Latin. Nobody out there could understand Latin. So they would conduct them all in Latin, and they would read the Scriptures in Latin. And if you wanted to know what the Scripture says, you asked the Catholic priest. And the Catholic priest, many times, would basically proclaim Catholic doctrine and not what the Word says. Hence, you had purgatory, you had the uh, Annunciation of, uh, 
or the deification of Mary. You had all these things that were added to the church, basically designed to control the people who were in ignorance. And then all of a sudden, the printing press became a reality in Europe, and translations of the scripture were out, um, Tyndale and Wycliffe and many of the others, and you had what was known as the Protestant Reformation began. Martin Luther, for example, got saved and nailed the 95 Theses on the chapel door at uh, in Wittenberg by basically just reading one verse for himself in Scripture where Paul says the just shall live by faith. And everything was birthed on that. Because the Catholic Church didn't teach the just shall live by faith. They'll live by obedience and sacraments and, and many other things that kind of filled the coffers of an institution that had long since lost its allegiance to Christ. What, the Jew, what, what happened to the Jews and the rabbis are the same thing that we saw in the history of the church that happened to the church. And what Jesus is doing, Jesus is responding not to the word of God, but responding to the perversion of that word of God, the interpretation of that word that basically took God's standards and lowered it to something we feel comfortable with. Now, we think it doesn't happen to us today, but it does. I, um, I know that you probably don't belong to as many polemic and preacher groups and all that kind of stuff that I do on Facebook. And Facebook, people kind of take their veneer off and they just kind of tell you what they think because the worst you can do to them is defriend them. You know what I mean? Like that's really a big thing. And so there's these constant debates that are going on about theological positions, such as every controversial one that we struggle with today. You know, abortion. There's abortion murder, it's a, it's a woman's right to choose, and, and then you have Bible-believing Christians that, yeah, but you can't expect a woman to carry a baby that she really doesn't want because she has rights with her own body, and, and the other people will say, yeah, but where in the Scripture does it say that? Well, it doesn't say in the Scripture, but it says that we need to love each other, and this is the loving thing to do, and these huge debates by Christians, many pastors, taking these different views because nobody is holding on to what the Scripture says. Simple one. Can a woman be a pastor of a church. That causes war. I mean, just remember Steve Camp, the Christian music artist? Really solid guy. He, uh, he got out of Christian music, and he um, went to Master's Seminary, and he's now pastoring a church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. He's a very, very solid guy. And he, uh, he, uh, he's the one that throws these questions out, and it's just it's just vile, the stuff that happens. Somebody would state what the Scripture says. You know, a woman can serve in almost an unlimited capacity within the church and in the ministry, but the position of a pastor is pretty much held to be a man. That's why one of the requirements are a husband of one wife, and it's really hard to be the husband of one wife if you're a woman. True? But it was like, how dare you say this? Why are you putting down women? You're judging, and and it's just... These are Bible-believing Christians that have bought into a secular interpretation of biblical truth to create Christ in the image that, uh, that they want him to be. So Jesus, in this whole Sermon on the Mount, this, especially this chapter 5, what he's doing is, is not necessarily setting a new standard for people who are angry or are lust or something of that nature, but he's setting the biblical standard. In other words, he's bringing the, the standard that the people had accepted like we have in our culture and raising it back up to where Christ uh, wants it to be. That's, that's why he deals with this issue in Matthew chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I'm not coming to destroy the law. When I say it has been said of old, but I say to you, I'm not destroying the law of the prophets. I'm actually destroying the interpretation of the Pharisees. Do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, which is all eternity, not one jot or one tittle, which is I shared with you when we went through this, they're just basically stroke marks of a pen, and they're smaller than an apostrophe. Not one jot or one tittle by no means pass from the law till it's all fulfilled. Whoever, therefore, breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so, which is what he's addressing, shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. 
He was speaking of the traditions of men. And so look at what he says here. This is in Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. He, he says that you've heard of old, and then what we need to determine is exactly what the Old Testament did say about murder and judgment, and whether the judgment was even a factor in that. It says, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. That phrase is not found in the Old Testament at all. That was the construct of men, that they decided to lessen the penalty God put on murder. Here's what the scripture says. First of all, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, it says, you shall not murder. The word there is rasha. You shall not murder. Some translations say you shall not kill. And that's okay because in the Hebrew, it means to murder, to slay, to kill. It all depends on how we interpret the word kill or the word murder. If it says murder, then we know what that means. It's a premeditated act of taking someone's life for personal reasons. If it says kill, then we can say, does that mean killing an animal? Are we all supposed to be vegetarians? Does that mean then we're killing a plant too? Does that mean you can't go to war? Does that mean you can't self-defense? Is capital punishment not allowed? And so when we read our English languages, if some newer translations say kill, you have to go back to the Hebrew and see exactly what the word means. And what it means is the intentional killing of another human being for purely personal reasons, whatever those reasons might be. It's not a judicial death. It's not a death by execution because of a government body has found somebody guilty of their crimes. It's the fact that I don't like Tim, and so I'm going to try to murder Tim. Bad example with Tim, because we just had that almost <laughs> happen. That's it. Sorry about that. Pick somebody else over here. But anyway, um, this is what the word means. And you can go through the passage and see that when he's talking about murder, this is what murder is. Matter of fact, murder was the first sin that we have recounted in Scripture. It says Cain talked with his brother Abel. wonder what that was like. Hey, uh, why don't you come on out here away from mom and dad for a little while? I want to share some things with you. Let's go out and work in the field. It's a premeditated act here. And it came to pass, talked to him, and after a while, after he decided to do this, while they were in the field, Cain rose up and killed Abel, his, his brother, for a reason we find, because God accepted one sacrifice and he didn't accept another. This is in Genesis 4. Five chapters later, the Lord basically lays out for them a law based on murder, since murder now has entered into his new creation. He says, Whenever whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. That's capital punishment. That's eye for an eye kind of thing. But why? Why is that the rule? We, we, don't, we think that's abusive today. We don't like doing that today. What we do is we put people in prison for life and then let them out after 20 years. And if we do execute somebody, the, the media gets all upset about that. And, and I mean, why? why? Why if a man kills another man is a man to put that man to death? And it's simply this. For he, the man who was murdered, is in the image of God because God made man. It's not, it's not just an act of violence between two human beings, as reprehensible as that may be. It's, it has to do with God's character. It has to do with God's holiness. That when somebody murders somebody else, they're murdering somebody who was created in the image of God. I mean, it's almost the highest form of blasphemy, if you think about it, that I'm going to kill something, not only God for personal reasons, this is murder, unjustified. I'm going to kill somebody just because I want to, that's created in the image of God, and I don't really care what that means to him. The Jews didn't accept this anymore. You'll be in danger of the judgment. What in the world does that mean? We have a, in Numbers that begins laying out the legal proceedings for how somebody is to be convicted of murder. And the idea is the fact that you cannot be convicted on the testimony of one person. There has to be multiple testimonies in order for someone to be found guilty of murder. It says whoever kills, now this is a different word here. This word means to beat, strike, or wound. It's like taking a, an ax and hitting somebody in the head. Whoever kills a person, and then it defines who that person is. If you strike or, or beat or wound a person for, again, selfish personal reasons, you are now a murderer. The same word that we just looked at. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death. 
The word death is the same word for murderer. In other words, it's a it's an act that is done, but now he shall be put to death because the act is a righteous act justified by the government at that time. But he shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses. Not but, not, but one witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of a murderer. Back then, somebody would commit a crime. If you've read the the uh, first five books of the Bible, you find it goes into great detail about uh, manslaughter and about um, assault and about destruction of property. If I'm in my yard and I throw a rock over my fence and I kill somebody else's cow with that, if it was unintentional, I would basically replace the cow. If it was intentional, I would have to pay fourfold. So in other words, what I'm doing is I'm paying a ransom to be absolved of my crime. When it comes to murder, you can't pay any money. You can't, uh, you can't say, listen, I'm really sorry about that. I know it was murder. Please forgive me. But I have like a million bucks in the bank. So let me just give you a million dollars and we'll call it even. Can't have a ransom because the penalty has to be death. It says, moreover, you shall not take a ransom for the murderer who is guilty of death, but he shall surely be put to death. So basically what Jesus should have said, it says, you have heard that it was said of those of old who quote the scripture, you shall not murder and anyone who does murder will be put to death. But instead the Jews had changed that and it had become a law to them where it doesn't say this anymore. It says that you shall be danger of the judgment. Now, what does that mean? You've heard it said of old, you shall not murder, but whoever murders will be danger of the judgment. Some newer translations actually say court or tribunal or what's called the college of judges. If you remember, you had like the Supreme Court for the Jews, the Sanhedrin, where 70 elders sat that met in Jerusalem. They handled capital crimes and large crimes and, and stuff that sometimes was appealed up. Then you had a, co- uh, a um, College of judges, there were 20 of them at the time of Jesus, who basically were like local district judges who handled disputes that were done more on a local basis. Like, for example, if I had a dispute with somebody and we are, they had one with me and we went to court, we wouldn't go to Supreme Court, we'd go to a local court out here. And if the, the guilty party didn't feel justified, they can always appeal it to another judge and another judge and another judge until it finally gets to the Sanhedrin. When it gets to the Sanhedrin, it's the, uh, it's the end for them. And so it talks about you shall be in danger of being sued. You shall be in danger of going before a human court who did not practice the um, uh, capital punishment at that time or a tribunal or the college of judges. And what Jesus is talking about here is the fact that, you know, they're, they're missing the point. What they've done is they've taken the law of God. By the way, do you think if... Um, do you think in our nation today that if someone committed murder, that if they were quickly tried, found guilty, and publicly executed like they were 150 years ago, do you think with a town to gather around and watch the hanging, do you think that the murder rate in our nation would go down? Big time. Think God knows that? Absolutely. But the fact is, they they got their eyes off what the scripture says, and instead they're trying to focus on what seems right for them. One of the first things they did is they did not prescribe the scriptural penalty for death. They simply said that you will be in danger of the judgment. They didn't care about God's character. I mean, God said that man will take man's life if man if that man is a murderer because he's created in the image of God. They didn't even care about the image of God anymore. What they really cared about is, is what is prudent in the society in which they lived. And nothing was said about the inner attitude that caused that. Nothing. Nothing. Tim and Debbie have shared with you that um, Tim's brother, Preston, tried to kill him about a month ago. And Preston is locked in jail right now, and it's very possible that he will get bail or get bond. And, and Tim and Debbie live in fear, because when that happens, if his heart's not changed, they may face the same problem again. True? True. You, you know, and so, and so this teaching here that the Pharisees are doing, don't even consider the fact that a man's heart may be Still a murderer inside. Yes, we'll, we'll let him off because of his actions, but the fact is there's nothing in the law that changes a man's heart. And then he continues. But I say to you, now he's not contrasting 
his word with the Old Testament Torah. He's contrasting his word with the prevailing attitude of the day. He says, but I say to you that whoever is angry. Now, this is, uh, this is where it gets kind of strange. Being angry means to provoke or arouse with anger. It's like you're the angry one provoking that, or wrath. It says if you're angry with his brother, and his brother has to do with unity. It can mean a member of the same family, a member of the same tribe, a member of the same countryman, or someone as a Christian who has the same nature. It doesn't always mean Ken McCraney or Preston. It has to do with with unity here. And, And we have some things that we're unified with when we talk about our life that we had in common, but when it comes to the things of Christ, we're not in unity at all, at all. Same thing with you and Preston. It says, but I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother, without a cause, and here's the caveat, it means a just and righteous cause, shall be in danger of the judgment, in danger of the, the punishment that can be inflicted by a tribunal or a group of judges. But the key phrase here for me is without a cause. What, what justifies that? I, I mean, I can be angry with someone, but if I'm angry for a just reason, righteous anger, then that's okay. And we know in our society we, we misuse that a lot. But the fact is that the Scripture does talk about righteous anger. Jesus was angry at the money sellers in the temple. Do you remember? Super angry. So much so, he told his disciples, I don't want you to have anything to do with this because what they're going to do is they're going to attack. They're going to come after me. I want to protect you. And he went in there and threw over their tables and whipped them with whips. And this was an angry action here. But it was okay because he was angry with a cause because they were defaming the name of God. We have in Ephesians chapter 4 that Paul says, be angry, but do not sin. And then it talks about don't let the sun go down on your anger. I mean, the fact is, the, the fact is that if you're going to be faithful to Christ, it will demand righteous anger. When somebody out there maligns your Lord, it should make you mad instead of just blow it off like it's nothing. When, when babies are being aborted every single day as a wholesale slaughter, that should make you angry. Hey, this has to stop when when sin is pushed upon you, like the whole gay marriage thing, that should make you angry. Being faithful to Christ means that we love the things Christ loves, and we're also angry at the things he's angry at, and he was angry at sin. Matter of fact, the Old Testament says that the Lord is angry with sinners every single day. But Jesus is not talking about um, righteous anger. He's talking about this seething, simmering, brooding anger that you just don't let go, that makes you think the worst of somebody else, especially someone that you're supposed to have unity with, especially someone in the family of God. So I started looking in Scripture, and I tried to find probably the most definitive passage that talks about how we're supposed to respond to each other to amplify what it says in Matthew chapter 5. And I found this one in 1 John 3.15. And there's a couple key words here. It's whoever hates his brother is a murderer. That one is used twice. And a murderer does not have eternal life abiding or resting in him. Powerful passage, but I want you to look at this whole passage in context. We'll begin at verse number 11. This is John talking about our relationship we're supposed to have with our brother. Now listen, when Jesus was using the word brother, he was using it more inclusive. He was talking about countrymen and talking about those that have maybe shared values. When John is using the word brethren or brother, he's talking about fellow believers alone. He's not talking about my earthly brother. He's talking about you and me, us together as brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's what he says. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning. We've been preaching this from the very beginning. Jesus talked about this from the very beginning, that we should love one another. The word here is not filio. It's not brotherly love. It is agapeo, that we should love with an altruistic, all-encompassing, unselfish, I give all, expect nothing in return, the same kind of love God has for us, that we should love one another. Well, like like, like brothers? No, not like Cain, who was of the wicked one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? 
because his, Cain's, works were evil and his brother's righteous. That's not, that's not the kind of love we're talking about here. And by the way, if that happened to Abel by his own brother Cain, because the evil works wanted to stamp out the righteous works, then you should not marvel, my brethren. You shouldn't be astonished. You shouldn't wonder. You should expect it, my brethren, fellow believers, if the world hates you. If the world has a persecuting spirit about you, that it detests you, it hates you with active ill will. Don't be surprised. It's actually a badge of honor that lets you know that you're in Christ. He talked about it in Matthew chapter 5. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely. Great is your reward. In the New Testament, all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. Jesus, don't be surprised if the world persecutes you. If they wanted to do this to the master of the house and they killed him and maligned him and said terrible things about him, how much more will they do to you, the servants of the house? Because a servant is not greater than his master. For this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, who was of the wicked one, and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because Cain's work were evil and his brother Abel's righteous. Now if that happened back then. Do not marvel if the world hates you. For we know, and this is not gnosko, this is, we, we know, everybody knows this. We know it in our head. We know it as a fact that we know that we have passed from death to life. That's just like saying, how do you know you're saved? How do you know that that you've been redeemed? How do you know that you pass from death to life? How do you know that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life? For we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren. Not the world out there, but we love other believers. He who does not love his, now it's, um, now it's personal, his brother, his fellow believer abides in death. He rests, he makes his home in death. I don't know if you've noticed, but people who... They almost have this spirit that comes upon them, like it's in their DNA, where if they hold on to the bitter things of the world and they don't love and they don't trust and they don't forgive, then then it like poisons their heart and every word that comes out of their mouth is cutting and derogatory and cynical. They live in death. Whoever hates his brother, personal fellow believers, is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. I mean, there's a, there's a distinction here. And the idea is the fact that these, this is what the scripture says about murder and about anger. And our job is to overlook and love, especially the members in God's household. And then he continues, and I'll go through this really quickly. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which is an untranslatable Hebrew word, our Greek word. And so what they do is they just left it as raka. But it's it's some sort of word that they used back then that showed incredible content and malicious uh, gossip and abuse, saying you're like you're dumb or you're empty-headed or you're foolish. And we call that, we call people like that all the time. Oh, you're so stupid. You know, this is worse than that. This was, this is a, a powerful derogatory phrase. Whatever says to his brother now, raka, shall be in danger of the council. The council here, if you look at the word, is the word we get the Sanhedrin from. So if I, am, if I am angry with my brother without cause, then I'm guilty of some civil crime, civil penalty in this college of judges. But if I say something this bad, it now intensifies, then I'm in danger of going all the way to the Sanhedrin, which can impose upon me even greater penalties. Because to slander a God's creature in the image is to slander God and is to equivalent, as the teaching goes, to murdering him. And then it goes one more. And whoever says, you fool, which is moros, where you get the word moron. And to us, that's no big word anymore. But it means, uh, it, it doesn't mean just somebody who's like a moron, not, not intelligently, not intelligent at all. It means something that is someone who is stupid and is godless in their heart and their character. It's assaulting the character of another person. Whoever says you fool shall be in danger of hellfire. Wow. So I've, I've gone from, I've gone from the Jews saying, listen, 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 here's how it works up. If you murder somebody, then, um, you know, we'll have to take you up and charge you civilly and there'll be some price you'll have to pay. and We'll do a ransom and you'll be okay. And Jesus says, no, it has to do with anger. 
And these are the words that you say, and there's a gravitation of, of penalty here. The idea is the fact that the idea is the fact is, is where it's the opposite of love. John MacArthur sums it up this way. And he says, to be angry is the basic evil behind murder. To slander a person with a term such as raka is even more serious because it gives expression to that anger. And to condemn a person's character by calling him a fool is more slanderous still. Been picking on Tim. I'll pick on Tim again. I'm angry at Tim. Okay. Well, nobody really knows that. And when I stand with Tim, I got this smile on my face, but deep down inside I'm seething. Maybe if it's a close friend or my spouse, I will tell them how I'm feeling about that. But, but then I, I, give, I give wings to that anger, and I now call him Raka. And I'm not only angry with Tim, with Tim, but I'm now saying, man, he's just stupid, he's a moron, he's dumb, he's just empty-headed. I mean, just, it just, I mean, why is he sucking up air? You know what I mean? And then if I take it one step further, now I'm maligning his character. I mean, he's unwholesome. He's ungodly. I don't want my kids hanging around him anymore. And it gets even more serious to that. And Jesus says that all of that is the same as murder. I don't want to get sidetracked on the whole murder anger thing. Because the deeper issue here is that what the Jews did is they watered down the truth to something they felt comfortable with. They didn't deal with any of those issues didn't care about the character of God. Instead, they simply said, you know, that you're going to be in danger of the judgment. It's, a, it's like a, a civil crime. And it's something that happens in our nation today, in our church today, and it's something that will happen to you. Most people, most church-going people, really don't know what the Bible teaches. They, um, and they get angry if you tell them something that is different than, than what they think. I mean, you know that passage about God helps those who help themselves? Y'all read that one? No, it's not in there. You know, but that's something that we kind of kind of accept today. And, and the fact is that, that our world is plunging into chaos. Our nation is in chaos right now. The, the truth, the, the bastions of truth for hundreds of years, which has been the press, you can't even believe anymore. But you can't believe everything Fox News says either because they have a, you know, they've got an agenda. You go on the Internet and you look for truth and everybody's got an agenda. And the fact of the matter is we're living in a time right now that the Old Testament talked about. There was no king in Israel and everybody does what's right in their own eyes. And there's no check on that. In other words, I am. Um, I'm going to show you a clip here. I want to go ahead and tell you this is not a Trump clip. This is not a political thing, although it does deal with Donald Trump. I mean, he was elected president of the United States, and I don't really care whether you like him or not. That's not really the issue. He is our president. True? And every single day, every single day, the major news outlets come up with a story. And the stories have been, been proved false over and over and over and over again. I mean, there's a lying that's going on from those people who are supposed to proclaim truth for the sole purpose of causing chaos in our nation and getting us our eyes off of what we're supposed to be doing, and nobody cares. Nobody says anything about it. And the, the news media keeps doing this with their talking heads. And, and the danger is, and I want you to listen very carefully, the danger is, like it was in Nazi Germany, is once a nation abandons all truth, and whoever has the platform and whoever has the mouthpiece is able to proclaim that truth, even if it's proven false, those guns will be turned on the church and those guns will be turned on Christians. One of the reasons why they hate Trump is because he's not part of the establishment, and he's done all these things that I think are pretty good, but he's done all these things from a conservative standpoint. Well, you know, Bible-believing Christians are conservative people. Do you realize that? A Bible-believing Christian does not believe in abortion or gay marriage because that's not what's taught in the Scripture. And if they're going after a political figure like this, they can just as easily go after the church. They can require pastors to perform gay marriages. I mean, if you're a baker and you don't cook a cake, they fine you $300,000 and ruin your life. And nobody says anything about it. Everybody is vilified by this constant stream of lies that we find ourselves, although we, we don't want to admit it, we find ourselves um, believing. I mean, I, I even found myself doing that. I mean, first there's, you know, he asked Comey to, you know, to stop the investigation into whoever the guy was that, you know, was his uh, 
I forget the guy's name. But anyway, yes, him. And, and I don't know if that's true or not, but I'm hitting this. Oh, the next day he gives away secrets to the Russians. You know, oh, the next day he calls Comey some sort of crybaby jerk. Oh, the next day. And oh, the next. And I, and I even found myself going, but what's going on in Washington? It's like chaos going on until you research this and you find out that none of it is true. None of it is true. In the, in the deal where supposedly Donald Trump shared top secret information to some Russian ambassador, the, the story broke by somebody who wasn't even in the White House. They heard a rumor. They, they broke the story. They played it on all the news medias, and it, it just burned up everybody's bandwidth for a while. McMasters, who was there in the room and heard the entire conversation, came and says, none of that happened, yet nobody believes it. It's always better to believe the lie. And we're, we're, we're finding that happening in our own nation, especially in the church today. So I want to, I want to show you how prevalent this is, and I want to show you a, uh, eight-minute video clip from uh, Sean Hannity two days ago where he talks about this. And I want you to see that if this is going on in the highest offices of the land trying to undermine a sitting president, do not think, do not think that you and I will go unscathed in this because they will come after me and they will come after you. And the only truth that we have is to know what the truth says. Amen. All right. This week, we've been telling you about the five groups that are aligning to try and destroy President Trump. Now, they want to undermine the will of you, the American people. Now, these are the threats that we're facing. One, the deep state. And of course, they're going after President Trump, selectively leaking information. Just look at the disgruntled, fired former FBI director, James Comey. He's using the press to carry out his own personal vendetta against President Trump. Number two, the destroy Trump media. These rigid, left-wing, Hillary-supporting ideologues pushing their tinfoil hat conspiracy theories night after night, breathlessly hyping everything up, one fake news scandal after fake news scandal. Number three, the Democrats, really sore losers, obstructionists. They refuse to accept the results that you gave us this election season. Then you got weak Republicans, establishment Republicans, feckless, no backbone, no spine. They never supported Trumpers agenda. They're a threat to the president. And number five, never Trumpers, holier than now, elitist outlets, National Review, Weekly Standard. They want vindication. They want relevance. And in the last two weeks, a new pattern of attack is emerging. This is what I want you to pay close attention to. The New York Times, Washington Post, constantly using anonymous sources, sources outside of the White House, dropping one huge bombshell report just before the national newscast every night at 6.30 p.m., and then, of course, cable coverage right after. Then there's been breathless coverage from the destroy Trump media, their Democratic allies, now calling day after day for President Trump's impeachment. So just listen to this from earlier this week. You cannot make this stuff up. I rise today, Mr. Speaker, to call for the impeachment of the president of the United States of America for obstruction of justice. Are we getting closer and closer to the possibility of yet another impeachment process? After watching the Clinton impeachment, I thought I'd never see another one. But I think we're in impeachment territory now really? for the first time. We are well on our way to impeachment because I think there's a clear set of facts that show obstruction of justice. This is heading toward the end, right? It has to be, right? It feels that way. All right, here's what they're not telling you. The destroy Trump media and the Democrats, they're not going to tell you many of the stories that you have heard in the last two weeks that they're using to destroy President Trump and hyperventilate every night have now been proven totally false. Now let's start with the Trump-hating Washington Post. Last week, the Post reported that the Deputy Attorney General, Rod Rosenstein, he threatened to quit because of Comey's firing. Big alarms that night. Guess what? Rosenstein quickly shot it down. Somebody in the press actually asked him, and he sat on camera for an interview and said, no, he's not quitting, never threatened to quit. On the same day, the Washington Post, they alleged that before James Comey was fired, he requested more resources for the Russia investigation. That's why he got fired. Oh, big surprise. The Washington Post wrong again, because the acting FBI director, Andrew McCabe, testified the next day that he never heard such a request. 
and earlier this week. Yeah, the Post is back. They thought they nailed President Trump. They ran a story claiming the president leaked classified information to the Russians during last week's Oval Office visit. But people that were actually in the room, now they cited people outside of the White House. They said the people in the room, it never happened. Also, the New York Times, they're trying to keep up, and they've been smearing Trump from day one. Earlier this week, the paper of record cited a memo from James Comey, which claims that President Trump asked the now former FBI director to end the investigation into retired Lieutenant General Michael Flynn, that he sent himself a memo. Now, the president, the White House, have strongly denied that this ever happened. And then, of course, there's the fact that the reporter who wrote the story never even saw the so-called memo. This is fascinating. Watch this. Why is it the Times has the story, but not the memo? Well, uh, we, we've we been working, I've been working on a story for the past few days about the fact that Comey had written these. We thought that that was pretty significant in and of himself. And then in the process of pushing on those doors this morning, I learned more about one of these memos. And someone that had seen them recounted details to me. Now, as we pointed out, and we have reported on this program, now, in January, if in fact they had a memo and he said that President Trump was trying to encourage him to obstruct justice, well, guess what? That would have been two felonies that James Comey would have committed because James Comey has a legal obligation to report that immediately to the Justice Department, which, by the way, he didn't do. And then he testified in May and he said, guess what? Nobody ever tried to get me to obstruct justice. Whoops. And tonight, the New York Times is at it again. You can't make it up. And they're claiming that President Trump called James Comey, quote, a nut job. But go back to the memo. The Times alluding. The president trying to get the FBI to back away from Flynn. By law, he would have had to report this immediately to the Justice Department. He was so alarmed. Why didn't he say it immediately? Why didn't he report it immediately? Now, by not doing so, Comey may have broken the two laws we're discussing. They're up there on the side of your screen. Take a look at them. Then there's the fact that when Comey appeared before Congress on May 3rd, well, remember, he was asked about the potential for interference with an FBI investigation. Well, did that ever happen? Wouldn't it be big if it happened? This is what he said. So if the attorney general or senior officials at the Department of Justice opposes a specific investigation, can they halt that FBI investigation? In theory, yes. Has it happened? Not in my experience, because it would be a big deal to tell the FBI to stop doing something that, without an appropriate purpose. I mean, we're oftentimes, they give us opinions that we don't see a case there, and so you ought to stop investing resources in it. But I'm talking about a situation where we were told to stop something for a political reason. That would be a very big deal. It's not happened in my experience. Not happened. President Trump did ask James Comey to stop looking into Michael Flynn. Wouldn't that have been the perfect time to bring it up? And he said it never happened. Remember, that meeting was in January. This is in May when he testified. And last week, during a congressional hearing, the acting FBI director, Andrew McCabe, he said, there has been no efforts to impede the Russia investigation in spite of everything your friends in the news media that lied to you every night are telling you. I think the American people want to know the has the dismissal of Mr. Comey in any way impeded, interrupted, stopped, or negatively impacted any of the work, any investigation, or any ongoing projects at the Federal Bureau of Investigations? The work of the men and women of the FBI continues despite any um, changes in circumstance, any decisions. Um, so there has been no effort to impede our investigation to date. What you're seeing play out here is a well-orchestrated, well-organized attack. They want to take down a sitting U.S. president. Democrats, the propaganda media, they're throwing everything they have at President Trump and the deep state. And now instead of working on making the country a better place, enacting their agenda, the president is now forced to spend the majority of his time defending the lies, the smears, the conspiracy theories. Now, here's what everyone's missing. The left is successful because they've been able to slow down his agenda dramatically. That's a win for them, because they're not thinking about you and what you voted for this election, the economy, creating jobs, fixing health care, foreign policy. No, they want to create chaos because they think that brings them back to power. That's what's at stake here. Now, the purpose of this was not to talk about our government or Trump or anything like that. The purpose of this was to show you how important truth is the um, 
same group of evil forces that will do anything they can to push an agenda. In this particular situation, it happens to be to just to go after Donald Trump, is the same group empowered by the same sinister force that will go after you, that will go after the church, that will do everything they can to slander and malign you and, uh, and say all manner of evil against you falsely. The desire of the enemy is to stamp out the light that belongs in each of us. Men, it is our job to lead. It is our job to, to be the ones that protect our family. You know, we, we view ourselves as providers, so we work real hard. But in that being providing for our family, we also find our self-worth and our drive. And, you know, we <clears throat> sacrifice many times our family for our jobs. But not only that, we're supposed to be a protector of our family. Not only a physical protector, somebody breaks into our house where the first one is going to stand up there and, and fight them off and all that kind of John Wayne, Rambo, macho kind of stuff. That's one thing. We're also supposed to be spiritual protectors. We're supposed to make sure that no falsehood comes in our family, that our wives look to us as spiritual leaders. And if our wives are looking to us as spiritual leaders, that means that we should be further along spiritually than they are. Now, sometimes that happens and sometimes that doesn't. You know, a husband has a, uh, has a you know, eight-hour job and a wife has kids she's raising and her life is pretty tied up too. And, and, but the fact is, we have to have, there's one leader in the house, and that leader is us. And here's why I'm telling you this. And I don't, I don't mean for this to be, well, let me say it this way. Um, if a white guy stands up and starts talking about racism, a black person would say, man, you don't know what you're talking about. You haven't walked in my shoes. If a black person stands up and talks about racism, he has a bigger platform because he's probably been the victim of that himself. Would you not agree? So I'm a man who's raised a bunch of kids and I have a bunch of uh, grandkids that's gone through some good times and some bad times. I've gone on some spiritual highs and some spiritual lows, and I've sinned greatly, and, and God has blessed me greatly. But, but uh, I'm a man just like you who has to work just like you. I mean, for most of the history of this church up until the last couple of years, um, you know, I worked full-time at the radio station and pastored a church, and which is really, trust me, it's kind of a full-time job. Um, it is. And, um, you know, I'm busy just like you were busy, but the fact of the matter is I have to make a decision. Do I lead my wife or not lead my wife? For six months now, we've been talking about the Holy Spirit. For six months and I don't know what God's doing in a lot of your lives because you never tell me. But the people who do tell me what God's doing in your life, in their lives, how he's just opening up the word to them, how the prayer life has increased, how, you know, I'm closer to the Lord than I've been in like 12 years. And I just want to share Jesus and all that kind of stuff. Every person that's talked to me is a woman. Every person. Now, maybe God's doing the same thing in your life, but for some reason we don't want to share it or we haven't shared it. I've, I've listened to some of the conversations that we have after church. And when men get together, men are getting together and they're talking about jobs and talking about vacations and talking about you know this garden or this project, because that's kind of what men do. I've filtered around some of the women conversations, especially some of the women who've experienced revival, and Jesus is right in the middle of that. I found that when somebody says hey, will you pray for me? When a group of people automatically spontaneously prays, yes, let's pray right now. It is always orchestrated by a woman. Always. I applaud that, ladies. Hallelujah, ladies. But come on, guys. What are we doing? What are we doing? Well, I don't feel comfortable talking. Not the issue. You know, it's not the issue. I don't believe it or not, I don't feel comfortable talking either. I had to learn how to do it. And and men, in the times that are about to, to hit us, we're going to have to be able to discern God's wisdom in the circumstances. And our wife and our kids are going to look to us. And, you know, if we have a wife that is far more spiritual than you are and have, you have advocated that spiritual responsibility to her, it's like you've got a, a two-headed beast here. and It doesn't, doesn't work that way. There has to be something more important. And I'm not talking just to the men. There's ladies here that maybe haven't experienced something, a uh, renewal in their, their lives. But there, there has to be something more important than television or just what we've got to burn our life up with. And so the ladies have had for a long time, the ladies have had a, um, 
Friday night, a Friday morning um, prayer group that Lindsay has with the, the young ladies and a uh, prayer meeting that meets, I mean, how long have you been doing this? Two years? Three years? Long time. It meets together on um, on Saturday to pray. And, you know, they get there at 930. It's over like 12, 1230. I mean, it's, it's, it's an intense kind of prayer time. And I can see huge changes in, you know, in my own wife from that. The, um, the ladies, um, many of the ladies have been invited to um, um, the community Bible study on Wednesday. Karen started going a couple of years ago and invited some of you and some of you have been going. And, and it's really been, it's been an incredible thing for the ladies that have gone. And, and some ladies do and some ladies don't because I, I, I'm too busy. I don't have time for it. Okay. Maybe, maybe you're getting it somewhere else. But guys, come on. I mean, God help me out here. We, we, we got to lead. We got to be an example. And so that's why this Thursday we're starting our men's prayer meeting. And listen, you won't want to come. We're going to sit around and we're going to, we're not going to eat and have steaks like we did last time, debate you those two times. We're going to, we're going to sit around and we're going to talk for a few minutes. And then we're going to spend some time in earnest prayer and everybody who comes will be encouraged to pray. I'm going to teach a little bit and then you're going to teach. You're going, we're going to pick a book of the Bible. Um, and we already have, but I'll surprise you on Thursday and you're going to go through it. We're going to assign certain Verses, and we're going to practice teaching God's word to a group of men. Because good night, if you can't teach God's word to a group of men who feel uncomfortable teaching anyway, we're never going to do it to our wives or kids. Never. And we have to learn how to do that. And so I know nobody really wants to go. It's a hassle. It's another evening. It's all that kind of stuff. And I'm, I'm encouraging you that uh, we need to learn. We need, we need, and then again, forgive me for for painting with a large brush. If this doesn't apply to you, praise God. Um, I don't, you know, I don't know what's going on in your own personal heart. But the fact is that we've got to learn to have the same enthusiasm about the Word of God as we've seen manifest in some of the women here. And, you know, just to be overjoyed with who Christ is. So I'm, I'm asking you, we're going to talk about current situations that are going on. We're going to talk about how to strengthen your family spiritually. We're going to talk about things we need to do as husbands and fathers or potential husbands and fathers. It's open to any man. No age limit here. I don't, you know, if you're 14 and want to come, come. We're going to, we're going to move in that direction because we have to be focused, man. We've got to be focused on something else other than work. And other than building our empires and other, other than stashing away our retirement, because although that is important, it is not the most important. The most important thing we need to do is foster godly kids and godly grandkids and, and be the kind of people that our wives and our neighbors and our friends will go to in time of need for spiritual things. Amen. So I'm encouraging you. I want you to come on um, Thursday. I don't know if we're going to do this weekly. Probably start out that way. And then what usually happens is everybody kind of shows up and then we do it weekly. Then, they, you know, the vast majority kind of filter away and we have kind of a nugget or core. And I'm cool with that. Whatever, whatever the God puts together. But when you come, it'll not be a spectator sport. I'll, I'm on, I'll take it really easy on this Thursday, but it won't be a spectator sport. And we're going to, um, you know, we're going to lay out the scripture. We're going to pick some dates and, and assign you some, uh, some passages to teach. You won't have to do it initially. What I'm going to do initially is I'll give, um, but I'll give Justice one or some of the men that are more accustomed to doing that so we can kind of learn from them. But the most important thing that we can do is learn to be godly men and women. And I mean, if you're there, if you're a 10 already, then I apologize. This isn't meant for you. But if you've ever been closer to the Lord at some time in the past than you are right now, then you need to come. You know, ladies, you need to start coming on Saturday. I mean, no matter how busy our schedule is, I think we can work out another two hours to be able to come on Saturday and pray with some of these ladies because it's a life-changing deal. In the fall, if you're free on Wednesday mornings or if you can rearrange your schedule, you ought to sign up for community Bible study. It's ladies from churches all over the county. They're, the teachers that are there are just profound people. It's a uh, I haven't met anybody. My mom was the first one to kind of hook me up with that. But I haven't met anybody who hasn't gone and not received an incredible spiritual blessing. For those of you that go, would you say amen? Amen. So we need to avail ourselves to this because the same vileness 
that the news media is spewing out against a sitting president right now. Those guns will be turned on us. They're already beginning to be turned on us, and we have to be able to make a stand. Amen? Let me pray.